Good morning, everyone. So, John has been sentenced to rot and die on an island as punishment for refusing to participate in emperor worship. It's in the ninth decade of the first century, so somewhere in the original 90s. And on this island, John is given a vision of Jesus. It's a really stark, powerful image. Then there are seven messages to seven specific churches in the region. And these churches are facing, just like John, serious threats and pressure to abandon their faith. After these seven messages, John is shown the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4. This serves as the command center of reality. And in the throne room, all kinds of different creatures um, and representatives of God's people worship God and they exalt him. And if that was the sum totality of the book of Revelation, it would be enough. That would be a powerful enough revelation. But as we move into chapter 5, we realize that this apocalypse, this unveiling or revealing of things hidden is just getting started. So if you haven't done so and you're using our at-home worship guide, take some time and read through Revelation chapter 5, last book of the Bible. Read through it slowly or carefully or listen to it on an audio Bible and then come back here. Okay, so we are definitely moving past the point where most pastors and churches stop their study of Revelation. Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, sometimes 4, are commonly taught. And the reason is, is because they're relatively easy to interpret. They're not really controversial. And they can be kind of readily applied to modern life. I think we've seen that over the last number of weeks. But where things begin to go off the rails is this chapter. Uh, you know when you're driving and you hit the rumble strips and you realize you're starting to exit the lane and you're kind of snapped to snapped to attention? Well, in Revelation 5, we're kind of beginning to feel the rumble strips of this apocalypse of Jesus. We were pretty much staying in our lanes, uh, chapters 1 to 3. Comfortable, I get it, keeping straight. Veering slightly but manageably in chapter 4. Some weird imagery, but okay, we'll kind of hold it together. But in this chapter, and then the next, and the next, and the next, Revelation becomes absolutely bonkers. And I say that as a heads up to say we are exiting the smooth paved highway, the places of easy and obvious interpretation, and we are going off-roading, right? Beginning with this chapter, it's important to understand that Christians for 2,000 years have come to very different conclusions about how to interpret the rest of this book. There's been broad consensus on these initial chapters. But starting specifically in chapter 5 and 6 and moving forward, that's where you have this branching out of different interpretations. Now next week, I want to give an overview of those different views as we move into this more uh, strange and opaque um, symbolism and chapters and references in Revelation. But today, I just want to plant that idea. I want to kind of establish that in, a, in very much a seed form that we shouldn't expect 
to study and just immediately get what follows in Revelation, uh, especially if we're hoping to arrive at a some kind of a detailed timeline of end time events. But we'll talk more about that next week. So let's move through chapter five at a healthy jog um, with our seatbelts on. That's a mixed metaphor. You don't run with a seatbelt, but let's drive through chapter five off-roading. It's going to be a little bumpy, but let's have our seatbelts on. Verse one, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Okay, so God is on the throne, but now in his right hand, there is a scroll with writing on both sides and it's has seven seals. Now, seven, again, a number of completeness to a first century Jew. The number seven comes up a lot in Revelation, but this is strange. A, see, a scroll with writing on both sides. Normally scrolls just have writing on one side. What is the deal with this scroll? Well, there's a number of different theories as to the meaning of the scroll. I'm going to tell you the most prominent ones first, the most prominent two, and then share with you two others that um, I think might be somewhat helpful. Maybe the last one not so helpful, but okay. So the first, I the, the first theory is that this scroll is either the Book of Woes found in Ezekiel chapter two, um, and if it isn't, that Book of Woes is still very instructive to us. Because as you'll read in Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10, Ezekiel says, I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me, and on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. So notice that it says, on both sides of this scroll were written written words. This is the only time in all of scripture that a double-sided scroll is referenced. So even if this isn't this particular scroll, there's an echo here to this scroll in the Old Testament, which is a scroll of lament and mourning and woe. So there is something serious coming down the pipe. Number two, that this scroll is a outlining or holds information related to the events of the end times or the final days of the present age, right? Jewish believers believed, and then the New Testament picks up on this as Christians adopt this biblical worldview that we are living in a certain age where the kingdom of God and the, bro uh, the broken sinful kingdom of um, man uh, overlaps. But there's coming a time where this age will come to an end and God's new age will overtake the age of sin and death. We read more about that in Revelation towards the end. But there are prophecies surrounding what will happen um, at the end of this current age. Some people say the end of the world. But that's not a right way to frame it. I would more frame it as the end of the age before God's new age emerges. In Daniel 8, a vision is given of evenings and mornings, and God says to Daniel, these have been given to you, and they're true. Seal them up 
for it concerns the distant future. So here's Daniel thousands of years ago, given this vision, it's sealed up and he says, this is for the distant future. These are things which are to take place at the end of the age or the end of our current days. Those are probably the two most common and I think most justifiable uh, theories from a biblical point of view, that this scroll is a kind of scroll of destiny. It holds the sum totality of God's plan and how it's going to be brought to fulfillment across the cosmos. Now, the other um, theory is that it represents a will or a testament. Roman wills and testaments were traditionally sealed with six or seven seals. Um, you might think, what's the big deal here? Well, the idea here would be that the scroll signifies an inheritance, that the one who the one to whom the scroll belongs or could open the scroll gets to execute the will of the words written there. So that can have some complementarity with the first few views. The last is that this scroll is the book of life, which is mentioned often throughout the book of Revelation, chapter 3, chapter 17, twice in chapter 20. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we get to the later chapters of Revelation, but that's not really a strong view. The Book of Life seems to be something very different than this scroll. So I would say most Christians generally agree that some combination of one and two seems best. It's a, it's a scroll with writing on both sides that represents mourning and woe and of coming judgment and does disclose things which must take place before the end of the current age. It is a scroll of destiny, the destiny of mankind, and God's culmination of history. History is going somewhere. It's not just going to continue on forever. It has an end point as we, for life as we know it. And this scroll discloses what that's going to um, look like and mean for those who are alive during that time. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Right, John says, I saw this powerful angel. It couldn't open the scroll. It was crying out, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. So John says in his vision, he sees that there's no one worthy not that there's no one mighty enough. There's no one who's worthy enough to even look inside of it. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look inside. Right? Think about some of the most remarkable, celebrated, exalted people in human history. Call to mind famous philosophers or rulers or kings or athletes or spiritual leaders, celebrities, none of them are worthy to open and execute this scroll of destiny. And John breaks down. He says, I wept and wept. And that isn't, the picture that we shouldn't hold in our mind is of an, uh, an old man, just kind of a few tears streaming down his face. And he's, he's, um, he's kind of welling up and tearing up. The Greek word there is kleo, which is a term, it's, it's the strongest term you can use 
for a dramatic act of mourning. This is a traumatic experience for John. No one is worthy to open the scroll to bring God's um, planned future into fulfillment. And that doesn't just cause John to feel sad. It causes him to break down and sob and weep. He's despairing over that situation, right? The universe is lacking a champion. There appears to be no one worthy to open the scroll of destiny and to fulfill God's plans and purposes. What does that mean for history? What does that mean for life if no one could open the scroll? But then one of the elders, verse 5, says to John, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, the image of the Lion of Judah comes from Genesis 49, which the Jewish people applied to the Messiah. And the root of David is refers to the Messiah that will come from the house of David. That's a reference to Isaiah 11, who's anointed by the Spirit and appointed to rule all the nations with peace. And early Judaism recycled the imagery of this passage to represent a mighty warrior prince. So you have two very powerful pictures, a lion and, and, a, and a prince from the root of David. This is, this is a title that is meant to convey might and power. This elder says to John, there is a worthy warrior. Now just pause for a moment. Don't read ahead. Forget everything you have heard or have read for the next verse. If, you were, if we were taking in this vision in real time, what do you think John is expecting to turn and see when the elder says, see, look, look over here, right? A lion. You're expecting to see an apex predator, powerful, indomitable. But what does John see? Verse six, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. After being introduced as the Lion of Judah, right, the king of the jungle, it's revealed that this lion is actually a lamb. John expects to see a hero of epic proportions, and instead he sees a slain, helpless, weak, vulnerable lamb. The farthest thing, <laughs> the farthest animal you could get from an apex predator. I mean, it's absolutely shocking, and it's completely counterintuitive. And then in verse 7 it says, This lamb, he, referencing Jesus, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I want to take you out of this moment for, for a second, or at least zoom in on something that we can move past we can miss, I think, pretty quickly because there's so many other weird, wacky stuff happening here. Notice that it says that 
these um, living these elders and these living creatures are holding golden bowls full of the prayers of the saints. Saints not referring to super Christians or those designated as saints by a particular institution or group of people. The saints is just a New Testament term for those who are in Christ. Those who have yielded their lives to Jesus, we would say Christians, but they are referred to in all of the letters in the New Testament as the saints. Never give in to the temptation to think that your prayers are useless, ineffective, or unimportant. Part of this vision that John sees is that part of God's command center, part of the center of reality, the place of utmost importance and glory, is a place where your prayers are valued, they are received by God, they are kept. We know they're valued. They're put in golden bowls. And they're substantial in some way that we can't understand, but that this vision gives us a clue and invites us to think through is that as we pray, those prayers offered to God, the praise, the worship, the lament, all of it, it becomes substantial and it becomes something that is kept by God. Isn't that cool? I think that's really cool. Verse 9 they sang a new song. They sang to the Lamb and they sang, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased persons for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. These living creatures worship and celebrate Jesus. Why? Because he was slain. And through that sacrifice, he purchased persons for God across every ethnic, tribal, cultural, national, um, across all those lines. Right? When Jesus kind of begins his formal ministry, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is central to Jesus's identity and purpose, that the Lion of Judah is a lamb and he's made, he's worthy because he leverages his power and his glory and his grace and his love in this sacrificial act of allowing himself to be slain for the benefit of others. Jesus is worthy, not because he overcomes through violent predation like a lion. He's worthy because he manages to destroy the power of sin and death without destroying us. He takes into himself the hurt. He takes him into himself the spiritual trauma, the rebellion, the rejection, the disobedience, the punishment. And then he extends to us his righteousness, his rightness. And all that that rightness entitles him to. Daryl Johnson writes, The lion does not get to the throne by being a lion. The secret of history, which no one could have discovered on their own, is that the lion gets to the throne by being a lamb. The lion wins and conquers all by being slaughtered. 
This is the secret of the scroll in the right hand of the Almighty. Things aren't what they seem. The kingdom of heaven comes on earth through sacrificial love. The lamb is on the throne, not the lion. The lamb reigns over the universe. He reigns not by hurting others, but by taking the hurt of others into himself. And he calls us to reign with him and to reign his way. And don't be fooled, Johnson writes. This isn't weakness because the lamb has seven horns, symbolizing complete power. And this isn't foolishness because the lamb has seven eyes, which is symbolic of full awareness. There's no naivete here. This is not passivity. We, like the lamb, walk into all the brokenness, all the rebellion, all the evil, and we bear witness to the truth that the lamb is on the throne. Notice that, it, that part of the reason why they celebrate Jesus, the lamb of God, is that through his death, he has made them, those he's purchased, those who have yielded their lives to him, he has made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God. If you are a Christian, if you're genuinely saved, it's not because um, of anything that you've done. It's because you've received it by grace, through faith, by simply trusting in Jesus. But it's also the point of that is not simply to go to heaven when you die. They celebrate Jesus because Christianity is so much more than simply an eternal retirement upgrade. God's Spirit has been installed in you so that right now we grow into a kingdom, which is a reference to a place where the will of the king is done. So we become a kingdom and we begin to serve as priests, those who are dedicated to acting as a bridge between um, God's space and our space, between heaven and earth. And you might think, I'm not really sure what that means. What that means is you as a Christian have a divine purpose for here and now. And it includes sharing your faith with other people for sure. But sometimes the church has talked and taught as if that's really the only purpose that we have as Christians here. It's just about evangelism, getting people into the um, into the kingdom so they can go to heaven, heaven when they die. And that's kind of the, the sum of the whole thing. And it's like, no, you have a divine purpose that expands beyond that. We are called to bear witness to the kingdom of God here on earth and to serve as priests in the places where God plants us. God doesn't just save you for heaven. He saves you for this age, this earth, here and now. Notice also that they celebrate Jesus because they say those he has saved are going to reign on the earth with him. A lot of Christians think their destiny is simply to float around heaven, whatever they picture that to be. It's usually a very truncated, simplistic picture in their head of heaven. But this is alluding to something so much more. It's showing us that we are going to have a meaningful, interesting, challenging, joyful, constructive purpose for all eternity. Not in heaven, but in a new heavens fused with a new earth. And we are going to reign with Jesus and reign his way, not as lions, but as lambs. 
Verse 11, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is a powerful picture. It might be a good practice for you to sit quietly, read through Revelation, in an undisturbed space and try and summon as vividly as you can in your mind's eye this picture. Angels by the millions encircling Jesus in deafening, molecule-shaking shake, worship. And then every creature everywhere joining in and celebrating the world's true hero the only truly worthy hero, Jesus the Lamb, slain for us. And when you picture that, don't let what is staring you right in the face, what is hidden in plain sight, pass you by. Revelation 5 makes it very clear that Jesus is at the center of this cosmic worship. Everything and everyone is encircling Jesus. Is Jesus at the center of your life? Is Jesus at the center of your thoughts? Your friendships, your plans, your aims and ambitions? See, Jesus only fits in the center. We would think it's strange were someone to say, we should organize a solar system around Pluto and the sun will revolve around it. No, everything revolves around the sun. And if you were to toy or play with that um, physical makeup, it would be disastrous. See, these, this is one of the quote-unquote secrets that Jesus reveals, not just here, but throughout the Gospels. I mean, a really clear one, very famous teaching is Matthew 6.33, where he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Jesus is saying, I'm designed to be at the center. And you can have a lot of competing interests. What are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Where are we going to go? What's going to happen in five years? How do I best do this? How do I parent my kids? How do I deal with this financial hardship? Jesus says, it's not that these concerns are unimportant, but none of these things are supposed to be at the center. Even your own self is not supposed to be at the center of your life. Jesus says, I am to occupy that central space. That's how you were designed. And if you keep putting in other things, however good and noble they are even, at the center, and if you sideline me, 
things aren't going to work the way they're supposed to work. You're going to experience, to a small or greater degree, chaos, disruption, disorientation, a sense of like, uh, things just aren't fitting right. And Jesus says, that's right. You seek my kingdom, you seek my righteousness, all those other things will encircle that central priority and will find their place when I become the center. That's why any alternative proposed to how you relate to Jesus other than in the bullseye of your life is so deeply absurd. It's inadequate. And it's sinful. I mean, literally the word sin means to miss the mark, as in you take a shot at something and you miss the bullseye. Right? Think about the different ways that you could relate to Jesus. You could kind of think about Jesus and consider his life with um, with some critical distance and kind of be like, yeah, these are some things I could take from Jesus and organize them around a, a, this central priority. That posture, Jesus says, is utter foolish foolishness, and, and it's inadequate. You could even respect Jesus and say, oh, I, I value his spiritual influence on the historical stage. And so I, you know, my posture is to include him in my life, but I'm not going to center him in his teachings. That's foolish. You could even go one step further and appreciate Jesus or even venerate him among history's great gurus or sages or enlightened ones. So not only is he encircled, but you, you, you'd, you'd bring him into a fairly um, small, one of, one of the early, one of the first concentric circles around the center, whether that center is yourself or someone or something else. So Jesus is included, and he's kind of brought close to the front of the line, but that's not his proper place. His proper place is that at the center of all things, including your life including my life. Now, he won't force himself there. He could do that. He's a lion. But he won't. He's a lamb. His is the way of sacrificial love, and he'll respond to being invited. But, though he won't force himself into the center, Jesus will neither accept being an ornamental keychain on the backpack of your life or a bumper sticker on the vehicle of your life. He's not okay with being second fiddle. In fact, he warned people and said, if you love anybody, if your ultimate commitment lies towards anybody, even a family member more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now that's, um, that's egoism and narcissism of the highest order if Jesus is just a regular human being like you and me, or maybe... Uh, um, at some kind of even a different, if he's tapping into some kind of spiritual truth in a, in a different way. So he's elevated in some way, but if he's essentially just like you and me, then that, um, that challenge is, should be rejected on its face. But if he is the lion of Judah, the lamb, God, the son come to rescue us, God in human form, then it makes sense. If Jesus is worthy to take and open the destiny scroll of history, 
He is worthy to take and open the destiny scroll of your life. You were made for an eternal purpose and hope. And I don't care what stage of life you're at. I don't care what, how long you've been following Jesus or how many mistakes you've made or any of that stuff. You will never live into that destiny without Jesus and without centering Jesus. Because it's only available through him. You can't earn it through morality or good works or religiosity. You can only receive it from Jesus. He died on a cross in your place, taking upon himself the punishment and judgment that should have gone to you. And he was raised to a new kind of life, a resurrection life, as a foretaste of what life's going to look like when heaven and earth are married together at the end of all things. And that resurrection validated who he claimed to be, and it broke the power and penalty of sin and death for those who receive forgiveness and new life in him. And I guess today I want you to hear that good news. I want you to hear the good news that Jesus, the one who wins through divine love, can be the source of a new kind of life for you but only if you place him at the center and have everything else encircle him. And if you do that, if you ask for his help, his forgiveness, his mercy, and if you install him as Lord and Savior on the throne of your own life and heart, he will put a new song in your heart. He'll put a new fire and a new mission, a new purpose in your bones. He'll, he'll transform your imagination, give you a new hope, for this life and the life of the age to come. And he'll give you a new peace that only comes when the lamb takes up its proper place at the center, at the throne of your life. Worthy is Jesus. Worthy is the lamb. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, May you make Jesus the center of every part of your life. And may everything else be organized around him and his priorities. And may the result be a new song expressed through a new life of faith and hope and love for God's glory and our neighbor's good. God bless. Have a great Sunday.